Please have the passage in 2 Corinthians open in front of you. And uh, we're looking tonight at this whole matter of what it means to be a real Christian, what it means to be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might think that the question, what is a Christian, is a, an easy one to answer, but there are many who are in great confusion about what it actually should indeed lead us to and what the answer is. But actually, according to the Scriptures, it is very clear. It is clear what it means to know the law. And in verses 18 to 21, we have this great emphasis on being reconciled to God. And as we read those verses, maybe you noticed, but that word reconcile appears multiple times, five times. And to be reconciled means that there was a previous state of enmity and hostility, and the two warring parties are brought together. The hostility is ended because of an intervention. And the Bible is very clear that in our natural state, we are at enmity with God. We have rebelled against him. We don't want him. We are set against him. We want to go our own way. But the problem is with that is that there are great consequences to that. There is a, a condemnation before us. There is an eternity of punishment before us. And yet God in his grace and mercy has made a way in which that enmity can be dealt with. And sinners like us can be brought to be right with him and to have a wonderful hope and a future and to know God, which is truly the most incredible thing. And so this reconciling message is the very heart of the gospel. And it's what we have been given to declare. You know, if we are believers tonight, we are ambassadors of the King of Kings. It's a tremendous thing, you know. You're an ambassador for the King of Kings. We are his representatives in a hostile world. And the question is, what have we got to say? What is our message? You know, there are many people who've got a lot of things to say about a lot of things which aren't very helpful. But our message is clear to a lost and hurting world that sinners can be reconciled to God. That God is so gracious and so merciful that he himself has provided the means by which that enmity can be dealt with, even though we don't deserve anything from him. And so let's look at these verses together. And I want you to see, first and foremost, in verse 14, that we have this great emphasis of the love of God. And the love of God being a key motivation, not only in the gospel, but also in our ministry of the gospel, if we are believers. And Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. The motivation behind this reconciliation is the love of God. The gospel itself stems in the, the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son for this great purpose of salvation. You know, elsewhere it says, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or elsewhere it says, whilst we were enemies, God demonstrates his love by sending his son to save us through his death upon the cross. And so in verse 14, Paul is highlighting the fact that this love of Christ compels. It rules the believer. And again, 
Paul is not talking about his love for Christ, but Christ's love for him, that pouring out in his life. You know, the motivating factor in what Paul was doing, when he was overwhelmed by the great glory of the gospel. But also he had experienced the love of Christ poured out in his heart. The love of God in Christ had, had broken into his life and he was so overwhelmed by that saving love that he could do nothing else but live for the proclamation of the Savior. It compelled him. It motivated him. It ruled him. It was consuming to him. Now, my dear friends, I wonder, do we know that love, that love of Christ? And notice that he, he doesn't see it just in a, a selfish, personal way. It's not all about him. Again, you can often sometimes come across folk and they, they speak only of themselves and their, their own experience. But he says in verse 15, look, this compels me, it moves me. And then he speaks of this, this great saving purpose. And he says, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. You know, Paul was saying that what the Lord Jesus had done for him through that remarkable love was not just for him, but for all who would ever trust the Lord Jesus. This is so that they wouldn't, you know, live for themselves any longer, but live for Christ. And this incredible expression of divine love to the unworthy sinner, it motivates him. You know, friends, I wonder if we have become cold in our affections, if we have lost sight of the amazing love that has been lavished upon us, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 14, if one died for all, then all died. Now, some have got into difficulty on this verse. And uh, the question is, who did, you know, the Lord die for? Did he die for the whole world? If that was so, the whole world would be saved. If he paid the penalty for each and every soul, then each and every soul would be saved. And, you know, those who proclaim that need to reckon this dilemma, you know, that if he died for everybody who ever lived, they have to either believe in universalism, that everybody is saved regardless, or that they have to believe that the death of Christ secured the salvation of no one, but only made it possible if men choose him. And that's a great difficulty. As one explains, if you say that he died for everybody in general, then the reality is he died for nobody in particular. But Paul is not talking in those terms. He's talking about something that was actually accomplished at Calvary. That the death of Christ secures fully the salvation of all who would ever believe in him. And so Christ actually bore the sin of his people. He paid the penalty to redeem his people. His atoning death is not just a, a potential salvation. It is a definite salvation. And the saving power of the cross is applied to men and women, boys and girls, throughout the ages, across the globe, every language and tribe and people. And you say, well, how can you preach the gospel to everyone? Well, it's very simple. It's like this. The Bible says that you are a sinner. Christ died for sinners. Sinners like you and me. And if you will come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, he will save you to the uttermost. And that's it. You know, he saves to the uttermost all that call upon his name. 
And that's what we're encouraging you to do. It's wonderful to know that the gospel is not dependent or thwarted by the power of man, but it is certain of accomplishing all that God has purposed and the salvation of a vast multitude beyond our comprehension to his glory. And so Paul is emphasizing this and is controlled by the love of God in Christ, redemption in Christ from death to life, and all that he experienced and known, it motivates him to reach out to a, a lost and dying world, knowing that the Lord's gospel purposes can never fail. And when Paul was saved, his whole life was changed. And so it is for every believer. Look at verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means he no longer looked at people around him as just other physical beings. You know, he, he didn't just look at their outward appearance or their outward behavior. You know, there was a time when he viewed people like that and when he viewed the Lord Jesus like that. You know, the world is like that. It judges people, it looks at people just based on their externals. But the reality is Paul says, no, you know, my life has been changed. The second part of verse 16, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. And again, he says, you know, there was a time when I, when I saw Christ just in that external way, and I, I saw him as a false messiah. I saw him as an enemy. You know, I thought that all his followers deserved death. You can read in the book of Acts, when Stephen was stoned, who had the cloaks of all the people who stoned Stephen placed at his feet? Well, it was Paul or Saul at the time. And he made this external judgment on Christ and his people. And he was totally wrong. You know, it's the same for us. We, we did not know Christ for who he really was. And we wanted nothing to do with his people in any meaningful way. Maybe that's how you feel tonight. You know, maybe you're here and, you know, you're just looking at these things externally. And, you know, you're not that interested. And, you know, you, you just don't want it. But you see what happened was this. Christ intervened in Paul's life and he was saved and his understanding, his view of people was no longer based on externals. He no longer saw Christ and his people as the world saw them and judged them. He saw people with spiritual eyes. You know, as believers, if we are the Lord's tonight, we see people with a spiritual perspective. You know, and we, we see them either as those who know the Lord or those who desperately need him. You know, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where maybe you've been in a, a situation where it's been busy and you've been, you know, walking down the street or maybe you've been in the open air or, and you look out across the crowd, you know, and you don't just see faces. You see those who need the Lord. And it's heartbreaking when you see them lost and broken and ruined and without hope. You see things differently because you know the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw people with spiritual eyes as believers. That's how we see it. You know, one preacher speaks of his own experience. He says, you know, if you have children who don't know the Lord and, you know, they get all dressed up and they look good and they, they walk out of the house and yet your heart is breaking because the major thing that you care about is their soul. You may have a, a spouse that's attractive but doesn't know Christ and you see past that and your, your heart longs for them to know the Savior. We don't view the world 
the way the world views itself. That perspective is different now. That's what Paul says. And the way that we approach our lives in this world should be different, this gospel mission we have been given. And that's why he says in verse 17, he says, look, if anyone is in Christ, something incredible has taken place. He's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, we don't know, my dear friends, who will be saved. We don't know. We don't have the mind of God in that sense, but we do know that anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved and they will be made new and they'll be transformed. And this definite salvation in Christ delivers a person in entirety. It is a miracle of grace. They are born again and you can't be unborn again. And our responsibility is to proclaim and to plead with people that they be reconciled to God by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this wonderful love of God that gripped Paul, that saved Paul, that brought him from death to life so that he was accepted and forgiven became the passion of his life. Friends, I want to ask you again as I asked you this morning, does the gospel really grip our hearts? Or have we lost sight of the wonder of it all? Are we, are we actually taken up with Christ? You know, are we taken up with the gospel? Does it thrill us? Do we love these things? Or are we apathetic towards them? Paul says we are compelled by this. And it's not just for us, but for all who believe because we see people as they really are, eternal souls in need of a savior. You know, there's no superficiality. You know, we live in a world of lost souls. You know, you may not like their views. You may not like their attitudes. You may not like their personalities, but you see past that because they need Christ. And in the goodness and sovereignty of God, you may be the instrument that God uses to bring them to the Savior. You know, your, your stumbling words, I speak of myself, stumbling words and our, you know, our efforts, which at times we just, we cringe over it. You know, but it's not dependent upon, you know, the, 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 the eloquency that we have. It's pointing to Jesus and showing people their need of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to declare the good news that the enmity, the hostility, the separation between sinners and a holy God can be changed entirely because of what Jesus has done. And in verse 19, this word of reconciliation has been given to us. And he's talking to the believers at Corinth. He's talking to us, as it were. We have been given this ministry. And what a responsibility. And what a privilege to speak of the Lord Jesus. And we do that in different ways. You know, some are called to be preachers and teachers. But we've all been given the mandate to speak to people about Jesus in our various situations. You can reach people that I can't. We all have our different spheres of influence. And the message is, be reconciled to God. And let me just mention a couple more things about this reconciliation as Paul highlights them. What else are we to say? Well, if you look at verse 18, this reconciliation which is motivated by the love of God is also by the will of God. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. 
Now, again, what is he speaking of? What are these all things? Well, all the things that he has been speaking of since verse 14. So salvation, the provision in the death of the Lord Jesus, transforming, saving grace, new creation power, you know, justification, regeneration, all of this by the will of God, from God. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, look at verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling. Verse 20, as though God were pleading through us. You know, the significance of that is this. Reconciliation is by the will of God. In other words, God is working to do this. You know, it is God's work in us. We can't do it. We can't satisfy his wrath. We can't set aside his justice. We can't meet the demands of righteousness. We can't undo the separation. We can't escape the condemnation in our own strength. If there's going to be any change in the relationship, God must do it. You know, he must be present. He must be at work. His hand, his power, that's the heart of the gospel. You know, again, if you come tonight and you think Christianity is about, you know, abiding by a set of rules or, or trying your best to be a good person or, you know, trying to live out the Beatitudes and all those sorts of things, you've missed it. The gospel is that God has done for us what we could not do ourselves. That Jesus has come in order to deliver us and to redeem us and we are to trust him. You know, it is God's initiative he seeks sinners. He has designed and prepared the way in which this reconciliation takes place. It's all of him. You know, a stunning thing. And by the way, it's unique. Let me give you a challenge. You go and look at all the other major religions in the world, and you will not find another deity in the history of religion, I say deity, false deity, who is by nature a reconciler. You know, you won't find it. Our God, the living God, has set in place a way in which sinners can be reconciled. You know, God is so gracious. You know, you think God grants what we call his common grace on all men. You know, the fact that you're here and breathing is a mercy of his hand. You know, 1 Timothy 4.10, you know, it says there that God is the savior of all men, but especially of those who believe. And you say, well, hold on, what does that mean? Well, in other words, in a very wide sense, he withholds the death that sin deserves, you know, in our lives. He delivers physically and temporarily. Every living breath the sinner takes is astounding proof that God is by nature a savior. You know, Romans 2 says, the forbearance and the patience of God with sinners demonstrates that he is by nature a savior and opportunities are given for repentance. The very fact that as sinners, we enjoy so many things in this world and we're here in this creation and the tastes of food and the times of holiday, maybe relationships, we appreciate good things. That is the goodness of God who is by nature a savior. You know, if he wasn't like that, sinners would be consumed in an instant before his holiness. And so he is savior in that very general sense of forbearance and patience, but he is particularly savior in the spiritual and eternal sense of all who by his grace believe. 
those who trust Christ. You know, it is an amazing thing to know that we don't have to convince God to save. Our role is to plead with the sinner to benefit from the reconciling work that he has set in place to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it is a, a staggering, staggering thing. And it goes against so many preconceptions that so many people have about the God of the Bible. God is by nature a saviour. You know, and we could spend much time on that, but we need to, to move on. And, you know, God in that sense is a saviour of all men, but particularly the saviour of those who believe because he saves them not just physically and temporarily, but spiritually and eternally. You know, when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple that separated everybody from the symbolic presence of God was torn in two. And God ripped it from top to bottom. And access became open through Christ. Access to the one who is by nature a reconciling God. It is God who reconciles. God who takes the initiative. God who desires, you know, men and women, boys and girls, to come to himself. Reconciliation is by the will of God. Oh, it's staggering that God is at work today to save sinners, sinners who deserve nothing from his hand, and yet he blesses them immeasurably in Christ. And then verse 19, reconciliation is also by the act of forgiveness. Because the question then comes, well, how can God do this? You know, how can he reconcile sinners from every language and tribe and nation to himself? You know, how can he be just and justified? Well, there's only one way, and that is that he has to deal with their sin by not counting their sin against them. And that's what it says, verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Or Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. You know, the scriptures are full of these lovely truths that God is compassionate and merciful and willing to forgive. You know, when people talk about what it means to be a Christian, you know, the question is, you know, is, is not, would you like to be happy or, you know, would you like, you know, something better in your life? Would you like to be better off and all the rest? No, the question is, do you want to be forgiven? The question is, do you, do you want to die in your sins and face eternal judgment, or do you want to know what it is to be forgiven and to be right with God? And of course, there are immeasurable blessings that come now, but also forever. You know, Psalm 32, 2. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. You know, Paul quotes that in Romans 4. And God is willing to deal with our sin. He is willing to remove it as far as the east is from the west, to cast it into the depths of the sea, to remember it no more. And that is good news. It's wonderful news. You know, that God has made a way in which all your sin can be forgiven. That's the message of reconciliation. You know, beyond all the other stuff that people might say, all my sin and guilt and the power of sin can be dealt with. You know, when you're saved, you may not get rich, you may even face very deep trials, 
but you will be in the care of the sovereign God who is working all things together for your eternal good and his glory. You'll be on the sure path to glory and heaven because your sin is dealt with. You've been given the righteousness of Christ. You are forgiven and adopted into the family of God. And then in verse 20, the other aspect of reconciliation, it's an act of forgiveness. It is received by faith. You know, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You know, for this to happen, the sinner has to be enabled by the grace of God to come to Christ, to appropriate Christ by faith. What does that mean? It means to actually know Christ for yourself. No, not, not just to know about him, to know him, to trust him, to rest in him. You know, and as ambassadors for Christ, we, we come with this news that God has made a way for you to be reconciled, that he, he will forgive your sin, that he is willing to forgive you, that he offers these things as a free gift of his grace. And so we urge you, please accept this gift. Please come to Jesus Christ. Christ makes this offer directly. We plead with sinners to be reconciled to God. And there is no salvation unless the sinner repents and believes, apart from this response of faith. And again, that is God's work. We command men everywhere to repent and believe. The sinner must come in that way. And he is enabled to come as God graciously works. John 1:12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And then it goes on, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He does the work. And friends, our role, our responsibility is to plead and to point people to the Savior. You know, our hearts are to have the compassion of Christ when he looked over Jerusalem and he wept and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing Jeremiah, a great type of Christ in Jeremiah 13. But if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears. You know, we are the representatives of a God who is gracious and compassionate, the God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And our heart is to be like that to long and plead in prayer and proclamation that men and women and boys and girls would trust the Saviour. And I wonder, my friends, do you have that concern tonight? Do you have a heart for those around you outside of the Saviour? You know, we need such compassion and such desire to plead with men that they would turn and be saved. You know, it breaks our hearts that there are those who come under the sound of the word here, you know, week by week, and yet still they're not saved. And we plead with you, trust in the Savior. Trust him, do not delay. And then lastly, as we finish, this reconciliation is accomplished by the work of Jesus on the cross. 
That's the emphasis. How can a holy and just God not impute our sins to us? How can he justify the ungodly? How can he forgive us? Well, before God could forgive and pardon, his justice had to be satisfied. The law fulfilled the penalty paid. And again, this is the, the wonder of it all, that God himself in the person of his son was willing to take the punishment on behalf of sinners like us, he would become our substitute. He would stand in the place of those who would believe. Look at verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, if God is not going to impute our trespasses to us, but give his righteousness to us, how can he do that and still be just? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. The only perfect one, the lamb without blemish and without spot. You know, he was as sinless on the cross as he ever is eternally. You know, be clear, on the cross, Jesus did not become a sinner. You say, well, in what sense did he become sin? God laid our sin upon him and treated him as a sinner, even though he was not. He never committed any sin, but God punished Christ as though he personally committed every, every sin ever committed by all who would ever believe in him. And personally, he treated Christ as though he lived my life and poured out the wrath that I deserved upon Christ. And Christ took the punishment and the penalty that I deserved for my sin. You know, for, for death and eternal judgment, he was my substitute. And he loved me and he gave himself for me. You know, if you're a believer, he did that for you. He stood in your place. And all your sin and all your filth and all the wrath that you deserve was laid upon him so that you could be set free. So that you could be forgiven. You know, Christ bore these things. In 1 John 2 and 4, it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, for those who believe. What does that mean? It means that he turns away the anger of God. Now, I've used this illustration many times, but one preacher compares the anger to a waterfall crashing down over our heads. And if we die without Jesus Christ as our Savior, then that waterfall of divine wrath falls upon us and carries us down to an eternity of terrible, endless judgment. And it's what we deserve. It's what we deserve as sinners and rebels against God. The Bible says there is none righteous, that we cannot stand. But the Bible says that Jesus, as the propitiation, deflects, diverts, deals with this terrible waterfall of eternal wrath that we deserve so that we are removed from it. The Lord Jesus, in his great love for sinners like you and me, came and shed his blood, taking the place that we deserve so that we could be delivered from that wrath. And as the appointed mediator, he stood between God and his people and he gave himself a substitution, a propitiation to bear away the sin of all who would trust him. 
and he gave himself. He has wiped out the handwriting of requirements against us. He has taken our sin. He has nailed it to the cross. He died for us to be reconciled. And you know, it says in that verse that not only did he do that, but also there's another side to this substitution, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, before I can stand before God, I must be pure as God is pure. I must have a nature like his. I must be delivered from my sin and the guilt of sin and all that's true of sin. And there's only one way. The Lord Jesus Christ, perfect and divine, gives me his righteousness, clothes me in his perfection. He even promises to take me by the hand and to present me faultless before the presence of the glory of God with exceeding joy. How can a man be righteous before God? How can he be just? We said it this morning, the just shall live by faith. Trusting Jesus, his death on the cross to deal with our sin and the giving of his righteousness to us so that we are accepted with God both now and forever. And there is no condemnation for those who are in the Lord Jesus. You know, you don't value the Lord Jesus until you know him in that real and personal way. And I long so much that all of you here would know in your own heart and mind and be convinced personally that Jesus Christ is not only a Savior, but he is the Savior. And more than that, that he's your Savior. And that as you go from this place tonight, you know that you are right with God because you're in Christ. You're trusting him. You know, Paul says, we can't play around in this world. You know, we can't look at people without, you know, seeing them as precious souls desperately in need of the gospel, this reconciling message. This is the message that we have been given. We, we can't look at people superficially they need to hear of this Savior. And we need to plead with them to turn from their sin and to trust the Lord. And those who turn and believe will be saved. And that's the wonderful thing. It's beyond our comprehension often, the wonders of this redeeming, reconciling love. We are so insignificant and sinful and unworthy and undeserving, and yet God, has granted such a wonderful salvation. That's all of him. And the question is, have you been reconciled? Are you right with God? Are you forgiven? I pray that you would not remain in your sin, but even this night, you would turn and be saved. Trust in the Savior who saves to the uttermost all that call upon his name. You know, I have a certain hope by his grace. I'm not looking to myself. I'm looking to Jesus. And I pray that you will be too, because that's our only hope in this life and the next. Amen.